0: Case for today is in appeal number twenty two twenty eight zero six, the EOC versus the village at Hamilton Point. Ms. Coleman, good morning.
1: for the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Beginning with the verdict forms, the District Court is charged with knowing the law and submitting legally correct verdict forms to the jury. As submitted, the verdict forms in this case made it impossible for the jury to consider the totality of circumstances as required under Title VII. Mason said that when there are allegations of harassment from co-workers and supervisors, and then here residents as well. A jury must consider all of the harassment by all of the harassers together when determining whether there was severe or pervasive harassment. In Amons Lewis, this court made clear that whether a harasser is a co-worker or a supervisor is relevant only to apportioning liability and not separately to whether there was in fact a hostile work environment here the jury was required under these verdict forms to rule either that looking only at supervisor harassment there was enough harassment on on their on its own to create a severe or pervasive hostile work environment and then separately looking only at coworker harassment to decide there was enough coworker harassment on its own to create a severe or pervasive hostile work.
2: uh, Do the jury instructions support that approach?
1: The jury instructions, um, candidly, were a little bit confusing. Uh, They were the pattern jury instructions, um, which really were designed for cases either where there was only coworker harassment or whether there was supervisor harassment. Uh, The EEOC did agree that it was necessary to have separate instructions because they did go to the different liability standards. Um, there was a totality of circumstances instruction, but to the extent the instructions themselves were confusing, if the verdict forms had been correct, that would have eliminated any confusion. As it was, it truly was impossible for the jury to rule on the totality of circumstances. Even if the jury had deemed everybody involved in harassment to be a coworker, that still would not have reached the totality of circumstances because the forum left no ability for the jury to also consider the role of the race-based assignment sheets.
0: It's hard for me to see how, in keeping with what um, Judge Ripple is asking, it's hard for me to see how the uh, your client did not basically invite this error. Your, your verdict form that you submitted, which I have right here,
1: mm-hmm.
0: seems to be materially the same as the one that was used. It it yes, it looks a little bit different and all that. And your jury instructions as Judge Ripples underscoring with his question very much treated the supervisor vis-a-vis the, the you know, coworker uh, and third party as separate claims. I mean, by their terms they did.
1: respectfully the jury verdict form that the eeoc submitted is not similar to the one that was actually submitted the eeoc's proposal said first find was there a hostile work environment and then goes on to separate out the the verdict form that was submitted doesn't say first look at everything and find was there a hostile work environment it says was there a coworker hostile work environment was there a supervisor hostile work environment those are different inquiries
0: your, your, your verdict form didn't separate that out.
1: Our verdict form said, was there a hostile work environment? The jury should ask whether there was a hostile work environment.
0: Yeah, I, I, thought, I thought your argument, you started with Mason. Yes. I thought your argument is, you have to throw everything in the hopper. Yes. Put all the evidence in a bucket and ask the question based on once all the evidence is in the bucket whether in this particular case, whether there's a racially hostile work environment, right? Right. Okay, that's, and then what you're saying is, well, based upon Mason, then what you need to do is you need to start pulling things out of the bucket. You need to engage in a filtering function, okay? And the filtering, these are my words, not yours, okay? The filtering required by Mason is to figure out, That, that, uh, those elements of any environment that's hostile, any work environment that's hostile, for which an employer can be liable. Yes. You agree with me so far?
1: Yes. Well, except for the filtering. I'm not clear on what you mean, sir.
0: You have all the evidence in a bucket, right, Mm -hmm. in the jury room. What do you do with it then?
1: What the jury is supposed to do with it then is look at everything everything together and say yes looking at all of that that was a severe or pervasive hostile work okay environment.
0: and then what
1: and then for purposes of apportioning liability only at that point does the jury say this amount was contributed to by supervisors and therefore there is this affirmative defense this amount was co-workers and for that we look at whether the employer knew or should have known okay. That is strictly for apportioning liability
0: Okay, and so that apportionment requires a filtering. Yes. That's all I'm saying. I'm just picking a different word. Okay. Okay, but how does your verdict form require that? I don't, I, I got it right here. I don't see how it, how it walks the jury through that kind of Mason framework, if you want to call it that.
1: Your Honor, even if our verdict form was not perfect in the way it would have been, the verdict form that was actually in front of the jury certainly was not perfect, and again... Right,
0: and that's why in the final morning, on the final morning of the jury conference, right, you should have objected to the verdict form.
1: Well, at that point, Your Honor, yes, it would have been absolutely a better practice, no, no question, to have objected at that point. But it was not unreasonable for the EEOC to believe at that point that there was no purpose, because we had already objected... Uh, very extensively in writing with a citation to case authority to exactly this problem before trial. um, We had explained the Mason problem, that everything needs to be looked at together. It's very
0: hard for me to see how you preserved this by submitting jury instructions that Judge Ripple referred to that separated this claim by claim, where you submitted a verdict form that does not set out the Mason framework, that does not set out that apportionment Framework, and then on the fi- when the final charge conference is happening, you don't preserve your objection. I don't. I don't know how you can get out from under plain air review. I, I mean, when you say better practice, I think better practice mean is in this circumstance you're legally obligated to register the objection.
1: Well, I will say that in Orix Credit Alliance, the court this court did say it's not overly formalistic about waiver. And that even in circumstances where um a a party did not formally object the way the rules would require this court will excuse that in some circumstances and here because we did already make the court aware of exactly what the problem was with the proposed verdict form this is kind of circumstance that falls within ORX credit alliance but in any event even if this court were inclined to look at this under plain error review we do still believe that warrants reversal. Don't excep-
2: continue your thought first. The,
1: the exceptional circumstances here are that the district court already possessed our detailed and written objection, which is prime for appellate review. Um, it's not as if we didn't say anything, and now this court has nothing to look at. Um, it was reasonable for us to believe at that point that further objection would have been futile and redundant. Um, and then, in terms of whether the legal error affected substantial rights. Uh, claimants do have a Title VII right to work free of a racially hostile work environment, and they cannot have had those rights vindicated if their claims were obsessed, uh, assessed under an erroneous legal standard.
2: Ms. Coleman, if I think we have that point. Uh, let me, I was very surprised, very frankly, that you started with the verdict for, because it seemed to me that the 500-pound gorilla in the room in this case is the question of whether accepting the fact that they should have looked at the jury was supposed to look at the totality of the circumstances. Do we have severe or pervasive harassment here? Uh,
1: are, are you talking about the uh, trial or summary judgment claimants? Because the trial, uh, there is no um, challenge on appeal uh, regarding whether or not there was severe or pervasive harassment. The only question about trial on appeal is the verdict forms. But with respect to summary judgment, judgment. uh, yes, there is an issue about severe or pervasive harassment. And certainly in the...
2: Tell me your position.
1: Our position is, well, first of all, that is the only ground on which the district court granted summary judgment. Um, There, the district court's error was by relying on Fifth Circuit law, not on the law of this court. The Fifth Circuit says that if patients have dementia, then Harassment is just an expected part of the job it, is, it can't be severe or pervasive essentially because it, it is what it is with individuals with dementia. This court has uh, not only not said that but has specifically said in Smith versus Sheehan that uh, workers do not assume the risk of harassment by virtue of where they choose to be working um, the fact that patients have dementia in this court is not a reason to discount the severity or pervasiveness of what they say or do so, so
2: under our standard tell me how is this severe or pervasive
1: under this standard uh, residents have i mean there's testimony of race-based assignments which in cheney this court said was uh, the the most significant factor in finding a hostile work environment employers can't do that you can't Tell someone Tell because you're black, you can't go into this room. Additionally, there were nine claimants who testified that they heard the N-word, many repeatedly, the most severe, harsh uh, slur in the English language. Uh, this court has said it's so bad that there may even be occasions where hearing it just once, standing alone, is enough to create a hostile work environment. And of course, in this case, there is no claimant for whom that is the only thing that happened. There was other harassment as well. Um, Apart from the N-word, people were called all sorts of um, hateful things. Uh, They were told, well, you people, um, blacks all look the same. I can't tell you apart. There's a litany of things that happened to I think we
2: understand the record. Let me ask you another question. I'd like to know the EEOC's position on the question, if you want, of uh, secondary harassment. Uh, In reading through all these papers, I kept thinking the secondary smoke analogy, okay? You've got a lot in, your, uh, in the record here about nobody ever called me the N word, but I heard other people mm-hmm. use it. Uh, to what degree or how do, what is the law with respect to secondary harassment? What's it, the established law?
1: The established law under Gates is that repeated exposure to something, can create a hostile work environment, even if it is secondary harassment. Um, and I like your example of um, smoke, you know, because thinking of smoking, you, if you smoke a cigarette, that's, that's pretty bad for you. But if you are exposed to secondhand smoke, it's not as bad, but it can still make you sick. And that's the same principle here with harassment, that yes, of course it is worse for somebody to say to you, you are an N-word. Um, And then, you know, going down, it's worse for you to hear someone say that about you. But to hear that racial slurs and harassment are sort of a standard thing in your workplace, even if it's not all directed at you, targeted at you, that does affect your perception of your work environment as a racially hostile place to work. It is relevant to the assessment of a hostile work environment. Um, And whether something is targeted at someone or even, for example, the claimants who are women who were offended by the sign, the posted sign saying no African American men to provide care. They're not men, but they are African American individuals, and under Euknos, they fall within the target area.
2: Do you read our precedent as saying under no circumstances may the employer uh, direct a uh, person, a minority person, not to enter a particular room where the individual uh, will react uh, adversely to having that minority in the room?
1: No, Your Honor, we don't. What Cheney has said is not that an employer is responsible for stopping every form of racial harassment in its environment. What an employer has to do is act reasonably to prevent and to correct. So there are a bunch of different ways that could happen. As Cheney uh, Cheney listed a few of the possibilities, one is um, when residents first are admitted, tell them about the non-discrimination policy and get their consent in writing. Um, After admission, you can attempt to reform their behavior. Um, It is wrong to assume, as the Fifth Circuit does, that all residents with dementia are the same. Um, Some may have had an intent, some may not have had an intent to say these things, Some may be amenable to being told you can't do that and may stop. We just don't know. An employer has to try. Um, And then an employer can say on a race neutral basis, I am telling my entire staff, black, white, whatever, all of you, if somebody is experiencing um, some kind of hostility in a a room with a resident and you're not comfortable taking care of that person, come to us. We'll deal with it, but not on a race based um, approach. Sorry, I see that my time
2: is up. Say not on a race-based approach. Suppose a, a CNA comes out of the room and says, I am exposed by this, dement- this demented patient, exposes me to the N-word all the time when I'm in the room, repeatedly. I don't want to be in there. I've got to do something about this. Can the employer at that point reassign that individual to someone else.
1: Absolutely. And and that's what we are suggesting that the employer should be able to that any employee regardless of reason who is faced with a hostile resident should be able to come to the employer and say please reassign me. It could be because they're being exposed to racism in that room. It could be because it's just a cranky person who does not the want anyone. I
2: ask the question is in answer to the earlier question you said that race couldn't be considered. And you now you're t- telling me it can be considered as an accommodation.
1: Well, no, race can't be considered to say, because you are black, you cannot go into that room. That's my choice, as you're an employer. The employee can say, because of my race, I am being attacked verbally by this person every time I go in, and so I am asking you to please protect me from that. So
2: in your view, the initiative needs to come from the employee. Yes,
1: exactly right. I
2: see. Has the, if I may, sir, before we go on, the, uh, has the EEOC given any, published any guidance in this whole area?
1: Uh, not to my knowledge, no. No. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Okay, Ms. Column, we'll give you a couple minutes for rebuttal. Thank you very we, much. We used a lot of your time with questions, but they were well placed. Appreciate okay. It. All right. Ms. Martin, good morning.
3: May it please the court. I am Laurie Martin here today on behalf of two appellees. We have appellee Tender Loving Care Management, or TLC, and appellee Hamilton Point. Hamilton Point was the employer of each of the claimants on which summary judgment was granted. TLC was granted summary judgment as having no basis for employer liability. It was a consulting company, not an employer or, or joint employer or indirect employer. Uh, We ask that the summary judgments for Hamilton Point and TLC be affirmed and that the court deny the EEOC's argument for reversal based on the verdict forms. I I think the verdict form argument can be disposed of pretty quickly. Uh, We agree that argument was waived when the EEOC failed to object on the basis that it's currently arguing at the conference where the district court provided the opportunity to do so after it told uh, the parties what verdict form it would be using. Uh, and so we are talking at most a plain error review here, and there is no plain error. Uh, the verdict form appropriately asked the jury to evaluate whether a hostile work environment existed, and then compound question essentially, uh, was the hostile work environment created by supervisor conduct? Uh, further down the verdict form, separate question asked, was there a hostile work environment created based on co-worker or resident conduct? And so as far as how the jury was to determine a hostile work environment, instruction number 21, uh, which did clearly support and was also proposed in virtually the same form by the EEOC, indicated that the jury should look at the totality of the circumstances as to each claimant and uh, then proceed by evaluating whether supervisor or coworker harassment had occurred. Uh, This form didn't preclude the jury from considering any evidence uh, i don't know what type of yeah, evidence. the
0: point the point that miss coleman though i think is right about is uh even if you're correct that there was a waiver or were under plain air review because of the failure to object on that um you know by registering the objection at the at the charge conference it's very difficult for me to see how the jury instructions the actual jury instructions and for that matter the ones proposed proposed by the parties, how they align with the framework that she described accurately, in my view, from Mason. So you may prevail on plain air review but I don't, I really don't see how these instructions align with the substance of the case law, nor for that matter the verdict form. So in other words, you may say there's no plain error, but what I'm wondering about, are you sure there's not an error?
3: we don't believe there's an error uh, so
0: how does so what so with with the Mason line of cases in mind walk me through how the instructions track with that
3: sure so as I read Mason and Ammons Lewis uh, I believe that the case law clarifies that these are two distinct claims a claim for supervisor harassment is a distinct claim there are distinct legal burdens affirmative defense that applies there than a claim for coworker or uh, third-party harassment fits under that coworker. But do you
0: agree that that that, um, in keeping with the point that Ms. Coleman was emphasizing, that, okay, yes, separate claims because the liability standards are different, but, in the course of evaluating the evidence, all of the evidence needs to be considered together for purposes of answering the threshold question of whether, the employee is exposed to a. Here, you know, a racially hostile work environment.
3: Two points there. We think the way this is phrased, the jury was told to do that. Uh, they were asked, you know, was claimant subjected to a hostile work environment?
0: And what are you looking at?
3: I'm looking at the actual verdict form that was used in this case. Um, I know it was in the district court docket at page no, 301. Got, I think it's, it's in
0: example. the short appendix too. Yeah, go ahead.
3: So. Uh, has the EEOC proven by a preponderance of the evidence that, insert claimant's name, was subjected to a hostile work environment by Hamilton Point through supervisor harassment. So the first question there is, was the individual subject to a hostile work environment? Final instruction number 21. Keep reading
0: like you did, by supervisor harassment.
3: And I mean, I will submit there is no potential for liability for Hamilton Point if there isn't a basis for employer liability. So this question perhaps condenses those inquiries. Yeah, that's, Is a it, that's the employer issue right liability? there, but not incorrectly. Uh, there, under the Mason case in particular, the court and Ammons Lewis was clear that you know, there isn't a circumstance where it would be appropriate for uh, looking at that employer liability prong to consider coworker conduct in relation to a supervisor harassment claim. Um, And here the jury was also instructed on how to determine whether an individual was a supervisor That was a disputed issue in the case Um, The EEOC could have indicated yes to the first question and yes to the second question If they believed an individual was subject to a hostile work environment and that both supervisor harassment and Coworker harassment contributed to that work environment, but there's never a circumstance where just severe and pervasive Looking at totality of circumstances is enough, and so there is no error here.
2: Ms. Martin, who is the supervisor here?
3: So the claimants, and I'm jumping a bit, maybe to our summary judgment claimants here. We have uh, primarily CNAs, 13 certified nursing assistants, there, and two dietary aides. Their supervisors are the department managers, uh, and their supervisors, in a legal sense, as this court would define under Vance. Uh, and Nishan are are the people empowered to hire fire discipline promote transfer the EEOC Throughout its briefing refers to nurses as though a nurse is a, a claimant's supervisor That is simply not the case in a legal sense uh, Well so that
2: insulates the nursing home though doesn't it I mean the, as far as the CNA is concerned The 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 RN is the, the charge nurse is, is 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 God she's in charge
3: I think there's a couple Uh, ways That really,
2: we see that in these cases, and it really grates. Something's got to be done, frankly, with the law there.
3: With the law or with the training at the facilities, maybe. (laughs) But I think, you know, Nishan answers in the legal sense, at least, that the type of authority possessed by uh, the nurses, you know, limited review, limited training, kind of day-to-day activities, isn't sufficient in a legal sense. You know, certainly the fact that it's a nurse for whatever that's worth can be considered in looking at severity and pervasiveness, um, but where it does become incredibly important, we think, is when we look at whether um, you know, whether the facility was on notice, uh, and and the district court here didn't just deny some or didn't just find summary judgment. See, there's phase.
2: where I really get uncomfortable because the, the, the charge nurse is on notice, and the charge nurse is the one who is Directing the employee either to, either to go or not go into the room. Is they, are there any cases that have held that the charge nurse is at least the delegatee of the so called supervisor, the guy in the air conditioned office who knows nothing about what's going on on the floor?
3: I haven't seen cases that deal with that particular context. I mean, it it seems to issue. me the
2: company is just insulated in a very artificial way here.
3: Well, so what we think should have happened and what we think the court's case law supports in any context is that to put an employer on notice, uh, the individual needs to go to higher management or use any of the other forms available. There was a director of nursing here. Uh, There was an administrator. There was a a third-party hotline that individuals could call in their own name or not. Is there anything
2: telling the CNAs to go to the director of nursing?
3: Uh, The company's policies indeed did prohibit uh, discrimination, harassment, including by residents, Mm -hmm. and it empowered and told employees where to report that, and that included the hotline administrator, director of nursing. I see. So, um, you know, this context is important, and another piece of that context is that it's part of a CNA's and a nurse's day-to-day job to talk about how a resident is doing. Did so-and-so refuse care? Did so and so, you know, ooh, were they, in a, you know, in a mood today? Were they saying things that were uh, inappropriate or unusual? And so we do see nurses dealing with that in particular situations and actually implementing the type of race-neutral decisions that, you know, perhaps Cheney would suggest are required after, uh, you know, after a complaint has been raised. Cheney does not suggest that's a new independent element that must be proven before the employer's on notice. So. The fact that a CNA came out and said, gosh, somebody was using inappropriate language today, that is part of their day-to-day job. And and I think it's appropriate that they still be subject to the same standard where if I actually thought that was harassing as opposed to just noting how so-and-so was doing today, they had a path to do that and they failed to do that here. If they felt the nurse's response was inappropriate, they should have (laughs) reported that to hire management and we see only two claimants here ever reported anything to hire management in both of those instances we did see a prompt and effective response who are the two uh miss fletcher reported the pt assignment sheet uh, that she that's
0: sonia fletcher
3: sonia fletcher yeah and she did go to the director of nursing. She did go to the administrator, and we see within days that that assignment sheet was removed. And she later went to the hotline a month after it had been removed. And we see additional response and training conducted after that. Ms. Tolliver then is the other individual who reported she heard a coworker. And to be clear, there's only two instances of alleged use of the N word only by coworker in those two instances indirectly.
0: Bianca Tolliver.
3: Bianca Tolliver, she reported that she heard a coworker use that about someone else, and he immediately approached the employee. That employee apologized, and that did not recur between those two employees.
2: Do you agree uh, with your uh, colleague on on her assessment of a secondary harassment, like secondary smoke problem? Uh, (laughs) Is this actionable if nothing happens? Uh, If... If it's reported, is there an obligation to do something about it? What is the the established law from your perspective?
3: So I think this court definitely has made clear that whether we call it secondary or target area harassment is something less direct and and something that is less likely to create a severe or pervasive uh, hostile work environment for an individual. Um, And and here (laughs) we're talking not only about secondary harassment but blatant hearsay. There were rampant rumors, um, you know, maybe not surprising after the PT assignment sheet and after the EEOC's putting it in front of people investigating this case, but rampant rumors about that practice that led to a lot of speculation, CNAs talking to each other, and the EEOC really asked the court to elevate that hearsay evidence to something that I think in the Johnson case this court has said it should not be elevated to, which is essentially standalone elements or or standalone evidence sufficient to create. A hostile and pervasive or severe and pervasive environment Uh, so yes it matters if it was a supervisor and and here we really don't have supervisor conduct we're talking about resident conduct it matters if the conduct was a resident with cognitive impairment and and each of these individuals is really hired to and trained to manage and work with people with those types of behaviors Uh, we did not argue any type of assumption of risk defense and the district court did not find any type of defense like that, but the context of the workplace does matter, and that's under this court's um, jurisprudence in cases instructing to look at the relationship between the harasser and the harassed employee.
0: Ms. Martin, can I, uh, in the time we have remaining, let me just focus on TLC for a second, the management company. With respect to LIOT, uh, my question goes to what liability are we talking about holding TLC responsible for? So there's one, ex- there's one instance that seem, would seem quite clear to me, and that is that suppose for discussion purposes, we reverse the entry of summary judgment for the 15 employees. We agree with the commission on that. Then you'd have 15 employees that would, potential, that, that would be headed to trial, correct? Okay, and then the TLC question would seem quite ripe as to them. Okay, in other words, well, we need to answer yes or no. TLC can or cannot be considered a a joint employer. There's either a question of fact on that or there's not. Okay, but in the event that we ruled for you and affirmed the entry of summary judgment on the 15 employees, what other liability could we possibly be talking about? Because I know there's a jury verdict that came back in favor of, um, I don't remember the name.
3: Mr. Roshan Middleton.
0: Roshan Middleton, right. Okay, But I don't see the commission arguing that they're seeking to hold TLC liable for liability for the verdict that Middleton received. So what liability are we talking about?
3: I would agree with you. And if the court wanted to resolve this by saying there are no claimants who have claims, period, or those claims have already been resolved at trial, Perhaps the joint employment issue doesn't need to be reached, but the EEOC was seeking to hold both companies right. liable for the individual alleged, you know, individual. But in the
0: procedural price posture price. now, I don't see them arguing. I, don't, I can't think of one passage in their brief where they're talking about, you know, Hamilton Point has refused to pay liability or something on the Middleton's uh, verdict.
3: No, that, and therefore,
0: we're, we're, we want TLC to pay up on that.
3: And that judgment has been satisfied. Don't know that it's been released, but (laughs) no, I don't. I agree. There is not any separate liability and we'll rest on our briefing on the remaining arguments unless there are additional questions.
0: Okay, hearing none very well. Thank Thank you. you. Ms. Coleman, we'll give you a couple minutes.
1: Thank you. I have just a few quick points I would like to make. First, with respect to the rumors, This court did hold in Johnson, or say in Johnson, that rumors themselves may be relevant to a hostile workplace environment. Um, Obviously, again, not the strongest evidence, but they can be relevant, because rumors themselves can be hurtful. And in this case, uh, Hamilton Point quite easily could have stopped the rumors. The rumors were that Hamilton Point did not allow black employees to go in certain rooms because of their race. Hamilton Point could have said to the employees, this is just not true, and stop saying it. Of course we don't bar black employees from going into rooms because of their race. This would have been an easy fix, but they didn't, and the rumors continued. I'd also like to say that um, Hamilton Point is making much of the failure of several of the claimants to formally complain and follow their procedures. That is not the standard for whether or not Hamilton Point should be held could be held liable the standard is whether they knew or should have known about the harassment enough people said enough things to enough people um, that they a jury could find that they should have known there were uh, two complaints to the hotline there were complaints to the administrator to the director of nursing there was enough to raise red flags here where someone should have come in and said let's take a look so that didn't happen, and a jury could find on that basis, regardless of whether any particular individual followed the handbook procedures for complaining, that Hamilton Point knew or should have known and should have looked into it. Um, the the sense that because the, uh, the assignment sheet saying no African-American employees to provide care came down three days after... Um, It was first brought to the director or brought to Hamilton Point's attention after four different complaints. A jury could find that no, that was not a prompt and effective response, and that leaving it up for three days was quite harmful and humiliating. Um, And then I would also like to point out that um, it, it is, in some cases, We know that there were some claimants who were experiencing vicious racial harassment when they went into a residence room and said, I am a professional. I'm going to do my job, and I'm going to go here anyway. That does not give Hamilton Point the right as an employer to say no, because you're black, you won't go in. What it does is it requires Hamilton Point to protect that employee. Yes, she's a professional, she's going in, but she shouldn't have to be exposed to this. Now, Hamilton Point may not be able to make it stop, but it needs to try. It needs to do something. And a jury could find here that not only did Hamilton Point not try to fix things, but Hamilton Point actually affirmatively made things worse. So if there are no further questions, thank you very much. Okay.
0: thanks uh, to both uh, parties, counsel for both parties. We'll take the appeal under advisement. move to our